You know, I was thinking this week about um, about Christmas and waiting on Christmas and how, for me, Christmas seems to have almost snuck up on me this year. I mean, you realize two weeks from today, it's it's Christmas, right? And, and I remember as a child how that was not my experience. Christmas seemed to take forever. I was in a store this week, the other, you know, checking out somewhere, and uh, the the lady at the cash register, I was buying some Christmas gifts, and the lady at the cash register, her, her screen wasn't coming up, and she goes, this thing is slow as Christmas. You remember what it was like being a child? Christmas had, was an agonizing wait. I mean, weeks seemed like months. A month seemed like a year. That time between Thanksgiving and Christmas was like the longest period of time there was. I mean, the last two weeks, it just seemed it was couldn't get here fast enough. I, I remember um, when we were growing up, Christmas Eve is when our festivities started, and, and nothing happened before Christmas Eve. You know, as we've gotten older, now people have Christmas like, you know, last weekend with their families or, you know, whatever. But it was Christmas Eve. We started with a breakfast at my house, and then, my, then we did our family stuff that afternoon. We went to grandparents' house, and once we started, it went till noon the next day, almost nonstop. And I remember my dad always saying, don't wish it'll be done because it'll be done before you know it. I was thinking, don't wish it to be done. I want it here. I want it now. Now, some people handle that waiting for Christmas pretty well. Some people don't. We're going to have a little confession time, all right? How many of you ever searched the house trying to find where your parents hid the presents, all right? I see you. Mason was up quickly over there, all right? Search the house. Here's the second question, all right? This is about a four-part question, all right? Anybody ever find where they stash the presents, all right? Anybody ever open a present that was wrapped before it was time and without somebody knowing? There's some parents looking at their kids right now like, anybody ever get anything out and play with it before it was time? All right, we, all right, Kevin Steelman, I'm a little disappointed here, you know. Uh, first service, I, I had a couple of stories after it. One was of two sisters that opened their presents early, and they got matching sweaters that were different colors. And they liked the other one's sweater better. 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 Sweater better. Better. And so they switched the boxes and didn't tell anybody, of course. And when they opened their presents on Christmas Day, their mother was none too pleased. And those sweaters got taken back to J.C. Penney the next day, all right? So some people handle that kind of anticipation well. Some people don't. Well, we're going to talk about waiting because waiting has always been a part of Christmas. In fact, the very first Christmas had people that had been waiting for a very long time. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to open them to um, Luke chapter 1. And you may or may not know this, but... The Scripture is filled with information about generation after generation after generation that were always waiting on the Lord to act. 
there was this faithful group of people that sometimes they call them the remnant. And it was a group of people that continually served the Lord, waiting on His Messiah, waiting on the Christ to come. And year after year after year after year after year, decade after decade after decade after decade, century after century, they waited in a hopeful expectation. You know, one of the things that made waiting for Christmas bearable is that we always knew it was going to get there. Even though it seemed like it was taking forever, December 25th was always going to come. Well, many of these people in the Old Testament, they waited and they waited and they never saw God's plan come together like they wanted. In fact, most of them didn't. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, you don't have to turn there, but in Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about these people that uh, were mocked and scourged and put in prison, that were stoned, sawed in two, died by the sword, wandered about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts, mountains, caves, holes in the ground says this, all these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. Can you imagine waiting every year for Christmas to come and it never happens? You know the storyline in which in the wardrobe, you all know that Chronicles of Narnia, many of you are familiar with it. One of the saddest lines in that whole book is, It was always winter, but never Christmas. Or for the Jewish people, it seemed like it was always winter and Christmas was never coming. Many of the Jews kind of got fed up and they peeled off and they started to do their other things and said it must be a myth, it must be a fairy tale. They started to devote their lives in different places. And the longer the wait became, the more people that left. And we're not talking about a couple of hundred years. We're talking about four, five, six hundred years without God doing something on their behalf. They They... They began to go in different places. But in the midst of that, there were always a few people who remained faithful no matter what. We're going to look at a couple of those people here in a minute in Luke chapter 1. But before we get there, let me tell you why this is important for us. It's important for us because... At some point in all of our lives, if you're a follower of Jesus, at some point in your life, it's going to seem like Jesus is distant. It's going to seem like God is not there. It's going to seem like your prayers are getting no further than the ceiling above your head. It's going to feel like things aren't happening in your life, that God may not be listening, that God could have abandoned you, that things just aren't going your way, that you begin to question whether your faithfulness is in vain. You begin to question whether what you're doing is making any difference. You begin to wonder about the life that you're living. Should you keep saying those things? Because should you keep serving in this area? Should you keep doing what you're doing? Why am I obeying? Why am I missing out? Why am I not doing this? Why am I not taking the money? Why am I not running off? Why am I not uh, being a part of that crowd? Why am I continuing day after day after day to live my life if there is something as it's bigger than me? Because it just doesn't feel that way. 
every one of us are going to have those moments or days or months or years. And it's important to look at this story because the first Christmas story begins by reminding a couple their faithfulness has been noticed and their prayers have been heard. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. We're just going to walk through this passage together. and I want you to see the importance of being of remaining faithful. Luke 1, chapter 5, uh, chapter 1, verse 5 says, In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, that tells us a couple of things. First of all, it tells us that Zechariah is a priest, and secondly, that Elizabeth is from a line of priests. Basically, it means that these two married people are both preacher's kids, who were preachers' kids. In fact, their great-grandfathers were preachers. They are preacher line. They are from a long line of preachers. They were holy, religious people. They belonged to that group set aside to be the priest for the people of God. Verse 6 reminds us that it's not just that their line is good. It tells us that they were good. It says in verse 6, both were righteous in God's sight. In this context, it means that when God looked at these people, He went, they're doing it right. They're doing it right. Look at the way they're living. Everything's going. Verse 6 continues. Observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Have you ever read the Old Testament? Are there many rules or a couple of rules in the Old Testament? Many rules, right? Anybody ever read the book of Leviticus? Probably not. But if you've looked, how many of you have looked at the book of Leviticus and said, all right, what's the book of Leviticus? It's a book of laws, right? And that's not all of them. There's some other in other places, all right? It's the book of law. So there are lots of rules. It says here, they observed all the commands and decrees blamelessly. If you sent a private investigator to these two, there would be nothing to tell. They were doing what they were doing as followers of God, as priests. They were doing exactly what God had told them to do based on promises that were a couple of thousand years old, based on no evidence that anything good was going to come of it in the present. They were just continuing to do what the Word of God and the people of God had told them to do. Day after day after day. They weren't getting any affirmation that it was working. They were just doing what God had called them to do blameless, righteous, good people. So how's that working out for them? Look at verse 7. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. So, So let me get this straight. Day after day after day, they're getting up waiting on the Messiah, looking forward to Him, serving in the temple, doing what they're supposed to do, living a righteous life, being faultless, blameless according to the law. And what does it get them? It gets them nothing. The most important thing in their society was having children. For a woman especially, it was most important because in... I'm not, I'm not saying this is the way it ought to be. I'm just saying the way it was. For a woman, the only thing they thought was really important about her was whether or not she could have children. And it tells us here, Elizabeth is to blame. She couldn't conceive. 
So they thought that it was some reason God had chosen to curse them. But it tells us right here, they were good people. Well, you think, well, okay, that's, well, that may not be a big deal. So they don't have kids yet. Well, surely they've got time. Well, verse 7 tells us they don't have time. Why? It says they were both well advanced in years. Which is one of the nicest ways you can say they were old. Right? That's the politically, politically correct way of saying they are advanced in years. They were old. It was over. It was too late. God had not done anything for them lately. We find out in the story they've been praying about it. They had prayed desperate prayers of a couple who wants to have children, and the God had said no. He hadn't provided. Year after year, doing what God had called them to do. Month after month, doing what God had called them to do. And yet, there was nothing to show from it. They were basing their obedience on promises given to a guy named Abraham thousands of years ago about blessing the world and working through them. They, they saw some of that happen early on in the history of Israel with Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. And you saw that happening. And you saw Moses leading the people into the promised land. And Samuel and David. But after David, it seemed that God was moving Himself away from the land. The nation split. There were wars. There were good kings. There were bad kings. In between the time of Solomon's followers, up until the time of Zechariah, the nation of Israel changed hands 25 times. Think about that for a minute. Twenty-five times a new nation was in charge. The Syrians took them over. The Babylonians took them over. The Greeks took them over. The Persians took them over. It was like while they had absolutely no clout in the world, they had no clout in international affairs, they kept hearing over and over, God's going to bless everyone through you. God's going to support you. God's going to do this. And their experience was showing it hasn't happened in hundreds of years. The idea that somehow God was going to bless the nation of Israel was beginning to get smaller and smaller. And in the midst of that, there were things that the people of Israel could shudder to think would actually happen. There was a general that marched into town and he went into the temple and he set up a temple of Zeus in the temple of God. And he sacrificed a pig, an unholy animal, in that temple. Nothing happened. Just several years before this birth, a guy named Pompey walked into the temple. And he walked into the temple and he went into the very holy of holies. The place that only a purified priest was supposed to go or that priest would die. And Pompey walked in with his men and he walked out with nothing happening. So the word spread, nothing happened. Does God even care anymore? Can God do anything? And yet you have this couple, while all their friends are talking about what God can't do and how foolish it is to believe that kind of stuff anymore, how ridiculous it is to believe in this ancient God. Zechariah and Elizabeth just keep doing what they're supposed to be doing, and they get out of it nothing. Over and over again. And if you'd whispered into their ear during those difficult years of their golden years, God isn't able, you would have been wrong. 
Because the story in Luke, and the reason Luke begins his story with these two, is because this was the beginning of something brand new and amazing. This was the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And the reason this story is so important to you and me is because, as I said earlier, there are moments when we wonder, there are seasons of our lives when we say, is God active? Is God listening? Does God care? And the resounding answer from Christmas is, absolutely yes, He does. Look at verse 8. Once, when it was Zechariah's division, was on duty and was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot. There would have been 24 different sections, divisions, and Zechariah's division would have come up and they would have gone by lots and they would have seen and there would have been a lot of guys in there. And so being chosen by lot from your division was probably a once or maybe at most twice in the lifetime kind of event. So let's just assume for a minute this is a very different event for Zechariah. This may be a unique event in his life. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. It was a very, very sacred occasion, an honor to be chosen. They believed that God was the one that chose through the lots who got to go in. So they felt like you had been personally chosen by God to go in. In verse 10, it says that the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. And so you get the picture. That he is literally right outside the curtain of the Holy of Holies. He's there to burn incense. It's just him. Nobody else. Everybody else is outside. Because when you went in, you went in to get a word from the Lord. And verse 11 says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. This is just one of those moments I would have liked to see the reaction that Zechariah had when he goes to burn the incense and he looks up and there's an angel before him. Now, what do angels do to people in Scripture? They, they scare them, right? First reaction is always frightened. It says, when Zechariah saw him, he was startled, overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid. The first words out of angels' mouths almost always are, don't be scared because angels scare people. All right? They, they are massive apparently. They're, there's something about them that they are just frightening. All I know is when the angel speaks, people listen. All right? And at the Christmas story, you have all kinds of angels speaking. You have the angel speaking to Zechariah. You have an angel that speaks to Mary. You have an angel that speaks to Joseph. You have angels that sing at the birth of Christ. Angels are everywhere because they are just so excited about what God's about to do. It's unique. And he says this, don't be afraid, Zechariah. And then he utters some of the most beautiful words that Zechariah could ever hear. Your prayer has been heard. Now the truth is, and he's going to explain this, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. The word heard there doesn't just mean God has listened. It means that he has heard your heart and your prayer. And you're going to give birth to a son. His name will be John. He's going to bless people. He's going to be special. Um, it's going to be amazing. He will go before the Lord and the Spirit and the power of Elijah. That They always believed Elijah would come before the Messiah. He says, basically, your son's the forerunner of the Messiah. He'll turn the disobedient uh, back to obedience. 
to make a way for the people. You see, a lot of people had turned away. It was time to come and bring them back. And so, in other words, he says, I'm glad I heard, I'm here, and I want you to know that your prayers have been heard. Now, Zechariah is a little skeptical, right? He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know what you just said, but maybe you didn't realize something. We're old. We're advanced in years. How is this going to happen? You know, which is a pretty popular response. Mary, when the angel comes to her, and he says, you're going to be pregnant, you're going to give birth to the child, and she says, um, that sounds great. How's that going to happen? Because physically that can't happen. Zachariah says, we're old. How's it going to happen? And the angel says, all I know is I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and can speak to you and to tell you the good news. Now you will be silent, not be able to speak until the day this happens because you do not believe at their appointed time these things will come true. Here's the thing I want you to see in that last part and then we're going to close. Zechariah had an appointed time in his own life. I can almost imagine him talking to the angel and going, listen, we prayed about this. I mean, when we were in our 20s, we prayed desperately for this. When we hit our 30s, we prayed for children. Our 40s, we were a little concerned, but we still prayed. When we got to 50, we began to, to kind of give up. And we've been in our 60s. We've just decided it's not happening. It, it, we're just too old. And Gabriel says, listen, there has always been an appointed time this. The amazing thing Gabriel says is, you know over those 400, 500, 600 years when the world and the Jews think that God has been silent, he has not been silent, he has been preparing for this moment. And you are going to play a major role in it. But what's amazing is this was just the warm-up act. It was just the pre-concert concert. The conversation before the conversation. The evidence that God was putting things into motion. Planning to do what those who had remained faithful generation after generation after generation who had died and never seen the fulfillment of the promise but passed on to their children the hope. Passed on their children the hope the Messiah would be born. This God is a God that keeps His promise. In every generation in Jewish life, there was a remnant of children who believed. They grew up believing. They passed it on to their children. Well, finally, God says, the time has come. In fact, in just a few verses, it tells us that in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. John's proclamation was the beginning of the story. And it brings us back to the question of, is it worth it? In every generation, those of us who are followers of Jesus or considering that have to decide whether or not we will remain faithful in spite of the fact that God doesn't seem to do what we expect Him to do. Oh, holy night, the title of this series is called The Thrill of Hope, which comes from that song, O Holy Night. And there's a line in there that says, Long lay the word, the world, in sin and error pining. How many of you have used pining this past week? Right? 
That's not a word we use much, right? Does anybody know what pining means? Wishing, hoping, that kind of thing. When I was growing up, my grandmother, uh, you know, when she decided she wanted to get into my personal life and ask me about if I liked girls or not, she used to say, is there a girl you're pining after? Well, Granny, you're going to have to tell me what pining is before I can tell you whether there's one. It means longing for, wishing for. And it says in this song that long lay the world in sin and error pining that He would appear. The idea is that the world had for years and generations looked forward to that day. And as we wait in anticipation for Christmas, it ought to remind us of the wait in anticipation of the world looking for the Christ and the fact that because of Christmas Day and because of Easter that follows, we don't ever have to wonder about the presence of God or what God wants anymore. We can trust Him completely. He has spoken His final word. Let me ask you a quick question. What is it that you've been waiting for the Lord to do? What is the answer you've been desiring for the Lord to give? Is it something in your family? Is it something at your work? Is it something at school? Is it something with a friend? What is it that you've been longing to see the Lord do? And are you willing to say, Lord, I trust you, even if that doesn't happen? Even if that doesn't take place? Are you willing to be faithful like Zechariah and Elizabeth day after day? even if the results don't show up like you want. You see, the hope of Christmas is this, that one day it will. We may not see it for a long time or even in this lifetime, but one day the Lord's going to make everything right.